Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of 90 Min and Pledgeballs podcast series, Football's Climate Conversation, in which we take a look at how climate change is affecting the beautiful game. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Women's World Cup, the world's most eco-friendly football boot brand, Sokito, and how the PFA are helping combat climate change. I'm your host, Katie Cross, CEO of Pledgeball. Our first ever returning guest comes back today, Katie Rood. Katie is a professional footballer and New Zealand international whose career includes winning the Serie A League with Juventus in 2017, playing in the WSL with Bristol City and winning promotion to the championship with Southampton. In common with our other guests, she has also played for Lewis FC. How are you, Katie? Hi, Katie. What an honour. First ever returning guest. I had no idea. That's no pressure great. either with that one. <laughs> well, thanks for having me back. <laughs> Did you enjoy the World Cup final yesterday? Oh, what a whirlwind. <laughs> um, yes, I did, but it was mixed emotions. I wasn't quite sure who I was going for. Um, I've got a Spanish grandmother, but strong ties to England as well. And um, having having played here in, in England for so long, it would have been amazing to see what a difference winning that World Cup would have had to the game here. But I think regardless of that, the, the Lionesses have done themselves and this country is so proud. And yeah, I'm excited to see how Spain winning will influence the, the women's football culture over there as well, because what a phenomenal achievement for them. Yeah, right. And it was a particularly interesting win following the, should we say, uh, political issues off the pitch uh, with regards to the Spanish team. Um, maybe not one that people expected. Yeah, I think when you looked at the, the two teams and, and the strength of the character that has been shown by, by all of those players, um, I think you had two different setups. You had the England team who were so together, so behind and supportive of their coach and um, the impact that she's had on, on the culture around women's football in England has been monumental. And you think that that might have been enough to push them through, but the, the skill and the dominance on the pitch from Spain and I guess everything they've been through around the lack of respect and resources put in by their federation and um, from their coach as well, I think they, they had a lot to play for as well. And I think representing their country and, and the dreams of the, the future girls watching, I think, um, yeah, they had a lot to play for as well. And at the end of the day, they were the best on the pitch. They were. I actually, I don't think there's any, despite your uh, mixed and I'm sure who's promoted who's support there, I think everybody would agree with that. Uh, any particular highlights from the tournament as a whole? I think just everything. <laughs> the the fans in particular, I think it was great to see New Zealand win their first ever game in front of a record crowd. And then like it blows my mind that there were still record crowds after that game in New Zealand with teams that weren't even <laughs> from New Zealand, you know, that who was it? Italy, Argentina game, I think had a record crowd. Um, Spain, America, it was 
it was amazing to see. And then for Australia to go on and and finish fourth, I think, and go on a run that really captivated the country and really captured the hearts and imaginations of people all across the world. So um, I'm excited to, to go back to that side of the world and, and see what impact this World Cup has had because I imagine it's going to be mega. Yeah, right. And my other guest today, I, I believe that you already know very well, um, is David Wheeler, Wickham Wanderers player and the Professional Football Association's first ever sustainability champion. How are you doing, David? Yeah, yeah, good, Katie. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And how's the start of the season been going for Wickham? Um, yeah, it's been it's been a bit mixed. We've um, we didn't start well. We lost lost the first uh, couple of league games, but we've. We've won one and drawn one since, and we we got through in the cup. So yeah, it's been a bit been a bit stop stop start, a bit um, you know frustrating at times. But we've had a lot of new players, so it was kind of probably to be expected a little bit. So you were both at Glastonbury this year, discussing the effects of climate change on football, both in boots or uh, or wheeling yourselves around with wheelchairs and crutches. How did you find the experience? Were were people receptive to the message? Yeah, obviously we had a few challenges with injuries post-season. I'm glad to say that David's back up and running, literally, and, and hopefully will be back on the pitch soon. But my injury is a bit more long-term, so I've been relishing the opportunity to kind of step away from the pitch and, and use my voice even more than I did before. And Football for Future called us up, and uh, they had a spot at Glastonbury, which... Um, I was a bit naive, to be honest. I'm, I'm a little Kiwi kid. I didn't really know the big culture of festivals and everything and, and how epic that would be. But, um, yeah, it didn't take long to, to find out when we got there and the size and the scale of it. And there's so many people. And um, What a phenomenal experience uh, it was. We got to I, – well, I stayed in the Green Futures area. So Glastonbury is kind of split up this – a little something for everyone, <laughs> like no matter who you are and what you're into, there's there's a corner of Glastonbury for you. And yeah, we were situated in the Green Futures in the Speakers Forum, and there was just some phenomenal people there. Um, yeah, just reimagining how life on Earth can be and, and what we can do as a collective to to create that. And it was awesome to to join up with David and the Football for Future guys, Elliot as well, to really yeah talk about football and sports part that we can play in that and David yeah. was there any kind of standout uh, I guess responses or questions to you guys from from that talk um there were there were a lot of like it was quite varied wasn't it I mean there was some there was sometimes we 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 kind of like look at each other and be like Oh, I'm not sure about that one, and we just give it to Elliot, like because <laughs> that's a really complicated question. <laughs> we just pass that one over. Um, but yeah, no, I think a lot of it was, you know, people wanted to know what they could do, and it was kind of we were both trying to give them the the courage and the the confidence, and I guess the yeah, I guess the encouragement to say that any little thing is is helpful. Um, you know, just make a start. Just make a start. If you're a fan and you're pushing your club to to do the right thing, then you know that's one, and then soon becomes two, becomes three, and then all of a sudden you've got you know a chunk of the fan base that are that are calling on on the club to be more sustainable, and then it starts having a, a stronger impact. Um, I think there was also there was also like a few questions to us about you know how do we 
you know, square it with our lifestyles and having to, you know, travel to games and um, having to be almost trying to be squeaky clean ourselves as well. So that's a really interesting point, because this is something that comes back again and again when we look at footballers standing up, starting to normalise, making more sustainable decisions. Is that fear of being held up as hypocrites? Because, as you said, the lifestyle currently demands it. I mean, how, how would you answer that to somebody? How would you persuade another player to stand up and say, look, this is something we all care about and this is how you can take action? Yeah, I think um, it's something that I've definitely like, sort of gone back and forth with over the years. And like, obviously the initial human reaction is to get be defensive about it and say, oh, well, I do this, this, this and this, like, leave me alone. Um, but like, I think that in recent, like recently I've, I've almost gone the other way in the sense that almost owning being a hypocrite because it is virtually impossible not to be, I think. Um, and there's no point in trying to expect everyone to be perfect because it's just unattainable and it would probably make a lot of people disillusioned about it. Um, so like owning that you're imperfect, owning that you you make mistakes and you, you can't quite sussed it, but also saying that's fine. And as long as you're trying to, always you know make improvements and and do the right thing then then that's that's the most important thing i think that's a great message um you know i think that would resonate with a lot of people because as you said that feeling that you have to be a certain someone that 100 percent perfect uh environmentalist i guess in order to take action is is really putting off for a lot of people and we don't need that at all what we do need is a lot of people taking action where they can so i think that's a really good message so Back in February 2023, ahead of the hugely successful Green Football Weekend, David, you were announced as the PFA's first ever sustainability champion, with the PFA CEO, Maheta Molango, citing your passion and knowledge on the topic as a key reason for the appointment. So how did this all come about? Um, yeah, so I, I can't really massively put my finger on exact. I think it was just like a culmination of, of meeting different people in, in this space, like, like you guys, um, and various other people like David Garrido, um, you know, in, in the media, but also in in other areas, um, you know, and, and, and just kind of, um, doing bits and pieces with, with because like the community, the sports sustainability community in the UK is quite small. Everyone kind of knows everyone. It's quite nice. Like, you know, in a lot of ways, um, so I think it was it was kind of just um, people suggesting to me, are uh, you know the PFA doing anything? Like, would you be interested in doing stuff with the PFA? Like, can we help out? And I think it was more it was quite organic in the sense that uh, I think someone just suggested it to some of the PFA, and then they asked me if I would be open to doing it, and then that was that was kind of it really. Um, and yeah it's it's been quite interesting in the sense that i've because they don't really know what necessarily what they want to do with it i've kind of had a bit of a blank slate to just go well why don't we do this 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 and this and then that's kind of what we've been doing for the last six months is i've kind of been suggesting things to do and then we've kind of then been you know going back and seeing okay so how do we go about doing this that's really exciting so as you said it started out as you deciding to stand up and talk about it. And now you've got this, well, this this potentially incredible platform to reach a lot of other players. 
to actually really start to drive that change. I mean, where did where did your journey start in terms of sustainability? What, at what point did you realise the impact of climate change and, and decided to do something about it? And what was the driving force there? Um, I think it, it's just, it's been a bit, little bit of a slow burner, like a gradual process over the last few years where just my own knowledge and awareness has grown. Um, and obviously with that, it's, it's become, it's felt more urgent. Um, and I think obviously when you become more aware of things around the world happening, like wildfires and that kind of thing, you think it just keeps jogging you and keeps reminding, you, oh yeah, this is, this is super serious and it seems to be happening on a more regular basis and it definitely focuses the mind. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it, it, for me, it was seeing documentaries initially, um, you know, whether that be David Attenborough documentaries or, you know, the before the flood and cowspiracy, that kind of thing on Netflix. Um, and reading articles from environmentalists, um, you know, in, in the Guardian or, or wherever, um, and just get, gaining some more knowledge and then getting to the point where I'd made a lot of personal changes in my life and then feeling like it wasn't enough. Um, and that's sort of led me to the point of joining Football for Future, um, you know, helping Planet League, um, and, and just kind of trying to lend a hand to as many organisations as I can that, that are doing really good things in this space. And I mean, was it a knowledge that you always had about climate change? Um, because this is what this is what really interests me. I mean, when I look at back at photos of myself and I'm carrying like, I don't know, a plastic bottle, like I, lit- I remember a time when I, even though I, I taught climate change for years, I don't think it had the same, I had the same connect to it as I have now. Is there a time that you remember it's suddenly dawning on you that this needed to be addressed now? And what, I mean, what kind of process was that like? Um, again, like, I don't, I don't know if it was, I think probably when I made the most fundamental decision that I could have made personally in changing my diet, I think that was probably one of the biggest things because I was I grew up on meat like most people and you know I had meat two or three times a day every day um and everything that I did like shopping wise like in supermarkets was all like okay so what am I going to have with this chicken breast or with this like you know pork loin or whatever it was all based off meat as a starting point um so it was like quite a big shift for me like from a behavioral point of view um, not only to transition away from from eating meat, but also then to find like loads of new recipes and that kind of thing. And then the social aspect of it as well was was tricky initially because you know whenever I go home to to see my dad, it would be like you know he, my dad's a great cook and I love his food, and then he would sort of panic a little bit because he's like oh, I can't cook meat and what do I cook now? Um, which is like kind of sad in a way. Like, but he's adjusted now, but it's obviously like initially socially tricky thing and having to remind people that you're vegetarian whenever you go to a party or whatever um and then you know had the discussion with katie because you know veganism is that that next level over where often there isn't a a vegan option unless it's sort of preempted or you bring your own stuff so uh, what was it that drove you to actually decide to drop meat in the first instance do you remember i think it probably was i think it was the cowspiracy documentary because i i didn't really 
I don't think I really knew how bad and how many different like ways that the the meat industry impacted the environment. Um, I kind of I obviously was aware of the, the the animal rights issues, but I I guess it sounds bad, but I, it, that wasn't enough of a driver for me. Um, and now, it, like ironically, it's become more of a thing now that I've stopped. To go back, it's just like a, an extra hurdle to go back to that, which I don't think I'd ever cross now. Um, so it's just kind of like a, it wasn't the initial driver, but it's now part of it, I'd say. Um, it's, I, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to really articulate because it's almost like because you grew up with it, it's very normal. And there's almost this disconnect between what's on your plate and it actually being a living thing originally. Um, and having quit like having sort of like phased out from it it's now i've almost become more aware of that connection for some for some reason i don't know why i think it's a really good point katie when i mean a lot of this must resonate with you when when would you say that i guess this journey started for you yeah for me i think i came through it with my connection to nature i think i obviously grew up in New Zealand and spent a lot of time just walking on my own through these beautiful environments and ecosystems and just admiring the world that we live in. And I think like David, I was really into um, documentaries and things like that. And I think especially growing up in New Zealand, like it, you can, it can feel quite insular. Like you, you're only interacting with the people that you know. And like David said, you're growing up in a certain environment, then you don't necessarily question it at all. And I think it wasn't until I was in my early 20s and I started getting more online and seeing bits coming up about uh, what goes on behind the doors of the animal agriculture industry and kind of like slapping it away thinking, oh yeah, but no, my, my food doesn't, that doesn't happen to my food. I don't, I don't need to watch that. And um, I think I just got to a point where I, couldn't keep that cognitive dissonance up. I just, I really, really feel connected to animals. I grew up with them and I know that they have personalities and they want to feel love and be loved and um, that they can feel pain and suffer. And I didn't feel comfortable eating them anymore. And I just decided to sit down and watch the documentary called Earthlings. And I just thought, no way, no way am I ever going to pay for that again, that kind of suffering. Like that's not, I wouldn't treat the person I hated the most that way, you know, like um, it's just not, not a kind way to, to live life. And I think from that point, I think cutting that stuff out, honestly, it was a bit of a spiritual experience for me. I felt like the guilt that I had held my whole life from eating animals just kind of lifted. I felt like I could see more clearly. I was, I was eating all of these amazing foods that I hadn't even thought of before. And my recovery, I think, was the biggest aspect because I was definitely addicted to dairy. <laughs> Growing up in New Zealand, I'd drink two liters of milk a week. I'd have a kg of cheese that I'd just nibble on when I opened the fridge. Like I put sour cream on everything. It was constant. And I didn't realize how much pain and inflammation I had until I cut that stuff out. And, um, and I needed to like see it to watch that documentary to really have that motivation to be able to to make those changes. And once I did, I, yeah, again, like David, I never looked back. And from there, 
when I realized, because I had been told my whole life that if you want to be an athlete, you need to eat meat and dairy to be strong and to really get the results. Um, and then within two weeks, I found that the direct opposite was true. I never felt better, ever. And I was like, well, hang on a second. Like, what else have I been lied to about? And that started my my journey into just like trying to see the world for what it was and for what us humans are actually doing to it. And I think then having the privilege of getting to travel around the world with football and, and seeing it for what it is and really understanding how nature works and the impact that humans in particular are having on it, I think, yeah, it just made it so clear to me that I was also had the responsibility to speak up for it because I'm one of the few who understands the impact that we're having because it's so easy to just make choices in our everyday life that do have really negative impacts on the world, but we're just oblivious to it. Or we just, we kind of know, but we don't want to look. We'd rather just continue to make those choices. But I think we just all need to be a bit more responsible and, and really look into the impacts that we're having on the world. And it really makes it easier to make those changes and adjustments in our lives once we do. That's a really interesting point, especially the shift in perspective, because I think you're right. We're very used to accepting just systems as they are and therefore assuming that's the right way. But actually, we had someone on this podcast previously who said that in Italy, um, they'd seen that a lot of people that they'd known there had kept their houses immaculately tidy. But when they went out on the streets, it was very standard for them to just chuck rubbish out the car. And yet, as we saw from COVID, I guess a lot of people really appreciate these green spaces. These are the things we actually value in life, but we don't necessarily have time to actually step back and appreciate what it is and whether the things that we're doing are protecting those things, protecting where we play, essentially. Do you think um, the kind of associations, the negative associations with uh, veganism are starting to shift? Because I know <laughs> I heard a Walsall fan and a chant that they had when Forest Green Rovers were playing away at Walsall about when one of the players hit the floor about them eating their grass, <laughs> eating their pitch. Do you think those associations are starting to shift? Honestly, the more the more I look into it, I think there is more negativity around the concept of veganism. I think it's deeply misunderstood. I think a lot of people think of it as extreme. When I mean, I, when I started eliminating meat and dairy, I was thinking, and eggs, I was thinking, I'm never going to be one of those vegans. They're, you know, they're so outspoken and preachy and da 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 da. But the more I looked into what veganism actually is and the moral aspect of it, of not wanting to cause harm, uh, unnecessary harm as much as possible, you know, it doesn't mean, again, you're not perfect. There's no such thing as perfection and environmentalism or veganism, but it's just like you're doing your best not to cause excess suffering in the world. And I was like, I totally resonate with that. I want to live a peaceful life. And I think it starts with what's on my plate and then it expands from there. So I, but I think it's been co-opted in the media to think that it's some kind of <laughs> devilish thing going on. Um, but again, I, I don't think we need a whole world of vegans. I think it's it's a unique aspect. Like David said, I think the more you cut meat and dairy out of your life, I think it's easy to then understand that the harm caused to animals is completely unnecessary and, and you're more connected to it from that aspect. But I think just eating more plants is a way forward. It's better for our health. It's better for the environment and it's definitely better for the animals. So 
Um, I think that's what we need to encourage people to do is just like get more veggies on the plate, less meat, less dairy, less eggs. Um, and let's start helping farmers as well to kind of, yeah, move away from, from those damaging industries and towards uh, things that will really benefit people and environments everywhere. I, I think initially, like for me, I, you know, my, my, both my family and my in-laws all meat eaters. And I think I took quite a relaxed approach in terms of, you know, I wasn't overly vocal about being vegetarian. I, I wouldn't be overly awkward about it. Um, wouldn't sort of make too much of a song and dance about it. Um, and then there were moments where, um, of kind of like, support and i think if you let people come at their own pace then they, then they will start to change rather than trying to sort of guilt them into it or or push them into it because there was like a really nice moment it was really funny actually there was a really nice moment where we were i was up with all my my wife's family um in liverpool and we'd sort of had a, had a night the night before and then we we're having all having brunch together and uh a uh, ninety odd year old granddad. We were all sort of round the table. We were going, you know, like I said, our veggie breakfast, and then it went round the table, like um, full English, full English, full English, full English. And it got to the ninety odd year old granddad, and he said, "Oh, I have the veggie ve veggie breakfast, please." And the whole family like did a double take to look at him and be like, "What, granddad? Seriously?" And he was, and it, it, like he absolutely did it out of like just pure solidarity with me because i don't think he'd ever had a veggie breakfast before in his life um and also since then you know my in-laws have kind of dropped having meat for one one or two nights a week and for them that was you know quite a big deal uh, so i do think people are coming at their own pace and it's kind of kind of to link the two things we've spoken about is that i do have a lot of I probably have a lot more compassion and empathy for for people because of the situation where with my knowledge that I have on on you know the the climate crisis and the journey that I've gone on to get to vegetarian I should be going vegan like based off what I know and my beliefs and and things like that but I haven't made that jump and to a large extent is because of how much I love so like some dairy like cheese especially like i'm quite like oh, not impossible at the minute to, to drop it out um but so that sort of gives me perspective and gives me compassion for people that struggle with meat or fish like um which i think is a good thing because it's kind of like you it's not all everyone's sort of moving in their own in their at their own pace and i think if you're relatively relaxed about it people will start to come because they recognize it's such an important thing yeah, and uh, you both speak a lot of sense there. I mean, the other thing, harking back to what you said, Katie, and building on what you've said, David, is that, you know, even that recent BBC study showed that those people who do eat meat, just dropping their meat consumption by half equates to taking over 8 million cars off the road. So we're not, and I'm, I'm with you, I, I haven't yet managed to drop cheese. <laughs> Milk, fine, but cheese, I'm not there yet. But I totally agree. It's not about striving for perfection, everyone needing to be plant-based, but it's about doing what we can. And, you know, the other thing is that you've highlighted there is the importance of having those conversations around it. You know, we all exist within these own kind of spheres where we have these conversations and we're the only people who can actually influence some of those people in our spheres. You know, I bet it would have been very hard to reach your 90-year-old grand granddad unless it was somebody he knew 
You know, those messages isn't going to get there, but from you, it's a different thing. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I, a few years ago, I gave two of my best mates a hard time, like for still eating meat because um, they're much more knowledgeable than me and very passionate about about environmentalism. Um, and it kind of baffled me that they hadn't, you know, dropped, dropped the meat completely. And uh, they, they gen- gently reminded me that I'd been driving for like 12 years and they still don't drive. So I was like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <nice. laughs> um, so that was a really great tangent. That was very enjoyable. I know Jack's going to be texting me from the background saying, hurry up. Um, David, you recently became one of a number of footballers, along with the likes of William Therese Kong, Tom Cleverley and Craig Cathcart, to invest in the world's most eco-friendly football boot brand, Socketo. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. You can correct me in a minute. Uh, the boots are made from a minimum of 56% recycled materials, including carpet, plastic bottles and castor beans. And the company also recently launched the Devista Vegan boot made from 100% animal-free materials. So, David, what got you interested in, in Socketo and made you invest in the boot brand? Um, yeah, I think, again, it was in, in that sort of small circle of um, sport environmentalists where I'd, I'd been introduced to Jake and got chatting about it and it just really intrigued me and and just the I guess the opportunity to be at the very beginning of of the journey of um a product that I really believe in and I, I think is it's just like quite a cool thing to be a part of um you know as much as you know startup companies always quite a risky investment I think the the fact that quite a few footballers have already invested and will have you know, a, uh, a personal stake and a personal um, attachment to to how the company does going forward, um, but also the input and expertise that come from footballers is obviously invaluable. Like a lot of companies like actually, you know, pay people for their opinions. Whereas if you've got a lot of players on the inside, then that's, that's, a, that's a really positive start. Um, but I think this is kind of the, I guess that what you say, like the panacea, the holy grail to, 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 be making money potentially making money out of doing doing a good thing so it was kind of felt like too good to turn down really yeah and there's another interesting thing actually about Sokito am I saying that not right Sokito I mean I've always pronounced it Sokito but like I mean <laughs> I could I could be wrong as well so <laughs> let's have a vote <laughs> <laughs> um Katie how would you like to pronounce it Sokito <laughs> I think that one sounds the best. I'm, I'm yeah. Um, I mean, the other interesting thing I found about talking to Jake, who is the founder of Sokito, is that that kind of um, balance between encouraging people to buy things and producing a product that is is needed. Because what he said was that he was actually not producing many, say, different colours, not a big range, because he didn't want people swapping out football boots when they didn't need them. And it's that kind of thing, I think, that's really important to consider when looking at companies and where you buy things. Um, Katie, do you, I mean, when you go and buy things, is it always something that you have at the front of your mind? Do you always consider the sustainable option first? What what kind of things do you consider when you go out? Yeah, and I think that, that was started at the start of the process of becoming an environmentalist. It's like, when you need something, can you find the environmental option? And then 
over the years as well, I've had to be more careful because there's so much greenwashing out there that it's easy to be confused into thinking something is uh, good for the environment, but turns out it's just the packaging or something, you know. Um, so I'll always do that and, and look for the most environmental option. Um, but often still that's not the case, and especially when we think of sportswear and, and football boots in particular. So I was proud to get my first pair of Sakitos too. They're amazing. They're obviously the vegan ones. Um, super comfortable. Yeah, and, and really good. Um, what was the bit? <laughs> it was mostly just do you prioritize sustainability which i think you've answered perfectly yeah. <laughs> now i'm going to hit you with a, a, diff, a different question so i've got two final questions for the both of you so the first one and david you're not allowed to answer cheese i'm gonna go to katie first so that you can consider this what's your guilty pleasure it's like when it can you know when it comes to environmentalism what is your guilty pleasure yeah, I think it's tricky because obviously uh, my home is on the other side of the planet. So, um, but I had figured that if I was flying for football, then I would limit my, my personal flights as much as possible. So I haven't been home in two years, uh, but my mom's coming over next week. So I'm excited for that. But um, I think for me, it's like I've been through phases in my life where I've tried to be that perfect environmentalist where... I wouldn't buy anything if it came in plastic or, um, yeah, I wouldn't, if even if I was so thirsty, I wouldn't buy a plastic drink bottle um, at training or whatever. And um, I've come to realize that those small things, sometimes you, you suffer more personally than you do have a positive impact on the world. So I just relented a bit with that. I found it depends on your environment as well. Like when I was living in Lewis, I had an organic uh, wholesale store 50 meters up the road where i didn't need to buy anything with plastic um but here up in scotland it's a lot harder to access that kind of stuff so just relinquishing some of the guilt when i am uh buying things like that that it just it's a necessity if i want to continue to be healthy and, and eat well so um yeah just relinquishing the guilt realizing there's no such thing as perfection and then focusing my energies on the things that i can impact and can control um and using my voice with platforms like this to to try and make the difference i think that's what i've found is the the happy medium at the moment uh, that's great advice you are also by the way on a side note still well remembered in the zero waste shop in bristol for you <laughs> Uh, oh. for their vegan fudge <laughs> oh my god that stuff is so good yeah I, I mean I had a lot of fun in Bristol I'd cycle 25 minutes or so with my backpack and with my containers um, and fill it up so that was when I was I was on the vibe I was uh, doing the best that I could I was eating so well I love my time at Bristol it's an easy place to do it like Bristol Brighton some places are, are easier than others um but also now, especially the cost of things makes it more difficult as well, um, which is why I've started trying to grow my own food because I figured that's the best way to kind of, yeah, <laughs> write off those costs and, and the travel costs as well. That is great advice. Going back to, you know, perfect is the enemy is a good. Uh, David, apart from cheese then, <laughs> what's, your, what's your guilty pleasure? Um, I guess I'd kind of have to go with flying as well to to an extent like i i went i did two flights actually this year and i'm, I'm kind of considering doing none this so like i i look at years and sort of like football seasons rather than 
January to December. Um, but yeah, so I might not fly next year. I was kind of thinking about doing that as a sort of mitigating factor. But I think, yeah, like I, I do now. It's it's kind of annoying, but my conscious nag, nags at me now when I fly, even if it's you know a family holiday and it's a short haul flight. I still get guilt. I still feel guilt, pangs of guilt about it. Um, so yeah, like that, that would be, that would be up there. But I think we, yeah, we might knock it on the head for, for next year. Um, cause we had a nice sort of staycation holiday as well. And it was just no real different. I wouldn't say, um, just especially with, I've got two young kids, like it's just, they don't know the difference. So there's no, there's no, there's so many beautiful places around the UK. I've yeah. been blown away, especially the coastal regions. Like, um, you just don't think of England sometimes like that. But also I find if you go with the right mindset, then usually the weather's pretty good. My my catchphrase has been always sunny in Scotland. Nobody <laughs> believes me, but <laughs> I think it's true. <laughs> okay, nice. So my final question to both of you then is Katie for you first I know you're three months into a kind of potentially 12-month recovery but what are your aspirations for I guess the coming season if we're going to measure ourselves in seasons and both from a kind of professional perspective and from a sustainability perspective? Yeah for me I have been really enjoying getting involved with the punditry side of things I've been uh, doing stuff with the BBC World Service, which I've really enjoyed around the World Cup. And I think it's a great way to use my voice and maybe, you know, not necessarily talking directly about these environmental things, but having conversations with people who I think then will be curious enough to maybe look at my Instagram or something to, to tr like, resonate with me there, I think. Um, yeah, for me, I, I guess it's now that I'm injured and it's a pretty long-term injury. I mean, I spent my last five years working towards this World Cup, this home World Cup, and wanting to be there, running out onto the stadium in that first game, and it just wasn't to be. So um, I'm just going to take this time to, to process that and, and figure out what's next. And I think it'll, it'll come to me as the months go on. I think I've got a long process ahead, so... I'm not in a hurry to, to figure out what's next and I'm just enjoying the steps in the, in the meantime of just dabbling into to different things. I'm doing a course in creative journalism, which I think is great because I think how we tell stories is, is really important. And yeah, I'm, I'm just open to seeing where the road takes me, but I do think that it is heading back towards New Zealand and, and the Southern Hemisphere pretty soon. I think um, I've had an amazing chapter here in the UK and, and in Europe. And I think, uh, yeah, that time is kind of drawing to a close and I'm ready to see what's next a bit closer to home. And David, same question to you. Yeah, I think from a, a playing point of view, I think I I want to weigh in with at least as many goals as last year. I want to try and hit double figures this year. Um, and I think we've got enough quality in the team to get promoted. So. I think a minimum playoffs this year, um, you know, an improvement on last year and hopefully get promoted back to the championship would be the goal. Um, and I think from a sort of more personal point of view, I think I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully going to be on a kind of conversion course um, to then be able to start my train to be a sports psychologist next year. 
um, which is a, a quite a long road because it's like another two or three years after that. Um, so it's kind of like a four-year plan in a sense. Um, and so hopefully by the time I retire from football, I'll be fully qualified psych, which would be cool. Um, and yeah, I, I quite, um, the sustain, sustainability side of things, I'd quite like to achieve some tangible improvements with the PFA. Um, cause I think, like, I think it's quite, especially, you know, like people may, like, maybe it's a bit harsh to say, but a lot of the time people on the lean to the left in politics, like there's a lot of talking that goes on, um, and a lot of discussion. Um, but I'd, I'd quite like to have some tangible impact. Starting to see it now at Wickham, um, you know, got some electric charge points for EVs at Wickham now, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, the PFA, I'd like to see this time next year some some tangible improvements with their operations and you know their impacts, like with with the players as well. That is great. That was a very interesting uh, chat. And I know that we went wildly off tangent, <laughs> off script even. Um, but thank you very much. That was really enjoyable. So in a minute, we are going to have our monthly session with Heather from Pledgeball. Hello, Heather. And Hi. she is going to give us a World Cup recap of all the activity that happened in the Pledgeball League over the World Cup. And then we're going to talk about this new season, which has just kicked off. But before that, I want to do a brief recap of what Pledge Ball is and what is the point of it before we kick off this new season. Pledge Ball is made up of a group of football fans. We started it, we run it, and the whole point of it is that we rally a whole load of other football fans to get involved in a movement. And this movement is to drive change. We know that over 80% of football fans care deeply about climate. They want to protect where we play, the conditions that we play football in. But we don't necessarily see that. People don't necessarily take action. Now, it doesn't take everyone taking action to have an impact. It takes just 25% of a group of people adopting a new social norm for the rest to follow. So it's not even many people. I mean, Turf Moor is 27% of the population of Burnley. So we can really drive change here. And what Pledgeable does is show how many people are taking action. And through that, we can really accelerate change elsewhere and demand it, demand that clubs step up and take action. So that's what Pledgeable is. How do you get involved? In the first instance, pledge and support your club. We have a Pledgeable League that runs every single season and there are some pretty great prizes that run every season provided by clubs and outsiders. The more you pledge in support of your club and the more times and the more people you get involved, the higher your club climbs up the pledgeable league. And these pledges are things that can be as simple as switching to using a reusable water bottle all the way up to using your voice and voting. You go to pledgeable.org forward slash fixtures and you find your fixtures, you find your club and you pledge in support of them. So straight over to Heather then. Can you give us, Heather, a roundup of how our World Cup campaign went and what the story of that was? Absolutely. But to start with, what a World Cup it was. Congratulations to Spain and commiseration to the Lionesses, but you still inspired so many. And also congrats to the Matildas and Australia for their best finishing position yet and for hosting the biggest Women's World Cup yet too. So let's have a look at the World Cup. Legible league table, so it was a very exciting 
weeks. Um, so midway through the group stages, there are about nine teams who are competing to top the table by saving the most carbon emissions. Um, South Africa were leading the pack um, after also picking up some of their first points on the field with the USA and Australia in second and third. The Lionesses were sitting at sixth in the table and they still had plenty of work to do if they wanted to climb the Pledgeball League. As we concluded the group stages and started the knockouts, we tried to see some other teams climb the league table, such as Spain and England, and more pledges for South Africa too. However, there can only be one winner of the Women's World Cup Pledgeball League, and with a burst of additional pledges in the last week, England managed to seal the top of the table. Uh, South Africa finished in second, and the USA managed to stay in the top three and third. So an amazing 83,627 kilograms of CO2 equivalent was pledged to be saved by fans during the campaign. Thank you to every single one of you uh, that pledged and got involved in the campaign. Please keep an eye out on your email in case you may have won a prize. We've been sending out those emails recently. We'd also like to thank our supporters for their amazing content, uh, such as DR Sports as part of their watch-alongs and from Football Manager, and of course, 90 Minutes. They really helped to get our message out there. So, now that the World Cup is over, we of course turn to the kickoff of the Pledgeball League 2023-24. We have already had some teams on the leaderboard, and we're already seeing the former champions Bristol City leading thanks to their Pledgeball fixture on Saturday against West Brom. And we have also had fans from Chelsea, Dulwich Hamlet, Tottenham, Burnley, Whitehawk, and Manchester United women already pledging so far to see them. So if you want to see your team on there, get pledging and spreading your message to your fellow fans. We are also very excited to announce an amazing prize soon, thanks to our lead partner, RSK, that will definitely get fans out pledging in support of their clubs. So keep an eye out for that announcement soon. Thanks, Katie, that's me. Amazing. Oh, I'm very excited about this season. Last season, we saw, I remember that last leads were right at the top. I was convinced they won. And last minute again, Sissy. Bristol City pulled it out of the bag, which I won't pretend I'm sad about. <laughs> so, as Heather said, please do get pledging. Head to pledgeball.org forward slash fixtures. And the second thing is, talk to us. Please do reach us again on that website. We look forward to this season. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc